Ladies and gents, uh, let me pray for us as we open up the Bible today. Gracious God, we do thank you that you reveal yourself and that you speak in a true your word. We pray as we open up the Bible as we look at Romans chapter 7, uh, that you might be so gracious as to speak not just to our minds, but to our hearts as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Now, there is an outline in your order of services, or you can look in the online bulletins, whatever will actually help you. Uh, and that will actually be useful uh, to follow along with me. Uh, chapter 7 uh, of the book of Romans spends a very significant amount of time uh, on the topic of the law. Uh, you know, you hear the refrain, if you, if you just heard Ashley uh, do the Bible reading, you hear that constant refrain, the law, the law, the law. Uh, and the idea of living under the law seems very, very foreign to us. Uh, yet it's not, if you really think about it, okay? Because everyone in this room actually knows what it's like to live under some law. Uh, some law in life that you're expected to meet, you're expected to fulfill, you're uh, expected to achieve. And so I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, the law of academic achievement says uh, you need an ATA of 99.5 to get into medicine at University of New South Wales. Or 98 to do law at University of Sydney. And so you study hard to meet that law, that standard, and some of you will achieve it, others will actually fail. Okay? It's true of every course at university. Uh, there are also laws in the workplace that determine who gets promoted, uh, who meets the cut, who gets to go up, who gets the bonus, who's valued, who is able to satisfy the demands of the laws of productivity. If you're a worker, you know that. Uh, some will achieve it, some will not. Uh, there are also laws in marriage for those of you who are married. Uh, some of those laws are spoken, some are unspoken. It's true when you're dating someone as well. There are expectations we place on each other, standards we expect of each other. Uh, sometimes we can meet those demands, sometimes we don't, we fail. And so in every sphere of life, you and I are bound to some law, some standard, some expectation that controls us. In every sphere of life, we are already living under the law that says, unless you meet this standard, unless you meet the demands and you achieve what is asked of you, you are a failure. The law of success, the law of social standing, the law of popularity, the law of fashion and beauty, the law of academic achievement, the law of marriage expectation, the law of financial security, the law of friendship. It is endless. And you know what? It's exhausting, isn't it? Have you ever realized this? The reason why so many of us, we live our lives exhausted, uh, emotionally, physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, is because we are living under some law or rule in life that holds us captive. All of us know what it's like to live under a law that we're expected to fulfill and meet and achieve. Now, when you come to Romans chapter 7, so if you have your Bibles, you might want to open up. Paul says there's a universal law that binds all of us. A universal expectation that's placed on everyone in our world. Now, you might be here this morning, and I, I, there's quite a number of faces I'm not familiar with because I haven't been here for a while. Uh, you might not be a Christian. You might not be a religious person. And we're so thankful that you're here. Maybe you're, you're a secular person, right? But it's fair to assume, and this is what Christians assume, uh, let's assume, it's fair to assume that if there is a God, let's assume there's a God. If there is a God, if there is a creator, if there is a designer, it's fair to assume that he would have laws that govern our lives so that we would flourish, 
so that we would thrive according to his design because he's the creator so that our relationships would flourish it's fair to assume that if there is a god one would assume that there would be laws that tell us best practice in life okay because this is what would make for success now it sounds good best practice in life so that you flourish it sounds good but like every law we live under in life we find ourselves failing we find ourselves falling short and when we fail and we fall short we feel crushed in fact we live our lives feeling crushed living under the weight and expectations of laws we cannot keep that we constantly fail now here in chapter 7 Paul's going to show us how Jesus changes our relationship to the law how Jesus changes our relationship to the Lord. He's going to show us two things. It's there in your sermon outline. I've kept it simple. Sorry, I don't have three points. Only have two this morning. Uh, he's going to show us two things. Number one, because of Jesus, you're no longer bound to the law. You can see there the first heading. So Jesus frees you from the law. But then the law, you've got to realize, is also good because it shows you your failings and your need for Jesus. Okay, so those are the two things we're going to look at. Uh, so here's the first one, verse 1 of verse 6. Uh, because of Jesus, you're no longer bound to the law. I love verse 1 of verse 6. And the reason why I love verse 1 of verse 6 is because verse 1, verse 1 to verse 6 debunks the idea that Christianity is about keeping the law to be saved. Being good enough, fulfilling the Ten Commandments to secure God's approval, uh, earning God's acceptance by good works. It debunks that idea. Christianity never teaches that salvation or forgiveness or God's acceptance is by you keeping the law or by being a good person. In fact, look at what Paul says in verse 6. You have it there in your Bibles? Look at verse 6. He says, we have been released from the law. See there? It's religion that says, work to be good enough to be saved. Keep the moral code. Keep the Ten Commandments to be saved. Earn God's acceptance by keeping the commandments. That's what religion says. You work. You keep the law to be saved. But notice, Christianity is nothing like religion. Because Christianity says, you and I, we have been released from the law. Now, what does it mean to be released from the law? Well, Paul actually opens by using a marriage to illustrate our relationship to the law and what Jesus does for us. Now, notice he opens in verse 1 with a legal principle. It's a very simple legal principle. Everyone in this room, you don't have to be a lawyer like Zach to understand this. It's really simple. It says, verse 1, the law has authority over someone as long as the person lives. Okay? The law is only binding on you as long as you're alive. It has power over you. You have to fulfill its demands. You have to actually bear the consequences of breaking the law as long as you're alive. But when you're dead, the law has no longer any power or jurisdiction over you. Death ends the power of the law. And so you think with me for a moment, when you die, all your personal obligations to the law ends. You know that library book that you have never returned? Don't have to return it, right? The speeding ticket you incurred doesn't have to be paid, right? You want to speed? Speed before you die, okay? Your, your hex debt or your help debt no longer demanded of you. And so what actually happens is the law stays in place and you're bound to it as long as you're alive. Death cancels it. It's a universally accepted truth. 
Now, what does Paul do? Paul uses marriage as an example, okay? So look at verse 2 and verse 3. For example, by law, a, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. And that's true. Uh, marriage is a legal union, even today. Couples are legally bound together in marriage as long as the other partner is alive. And so when I do weddings, we've got that little phrase. They, they make their vows and they say, till we are separated by death. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law. She's no longer legally bound to him. Uh, she's free to remarry. Uh, the obligations placed on her as a wife ends. The idea behind the word release, you see the word release there, release from the law, is that it is annulled, destroyed. Her status as a wife no longer exists. She's free to remarry. And so, you know, when I do weddings, uh, we fill the legal paperwork, and there is a legal component that couples have to comply with, and I have to ask them. They have to prove to me that they are not legally married to someone else. Why? Because it is illegal to get married if you are already legally married. Okay? That's what verse 3 will go on to say. It says, if you shack up with another man, if you marry another man while you're married, you've broken the law. Why? Because you're legally bound. It, you are in legal union with someone else. Uh, but then look with me at the end of verse 3. It says, but if her husband dies... She is, see that word? She is released from the law. Okay? Death has annulled the power and jurisdiction and the demands and the obligation and the consequences of the law. Okay? Now look at verse 4 because Paul says, This is what Jesus has done for us. His death for you has released you from the power and the authority and the consequences and the jurisdiction of the law. So then, my brothers, you see there, and sisters, you also died to the law. You died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, I'm going to take a step back. And this is really to deal with those uh, in the room who object to the law. To think we are not subject to laws in life is simply untrue. Uh, everyone here is subject to the law of gravity. Uh, we're all in this room subject to the laws in the land in which we live. And normally if there are laws, like the law of gravity, or even our uh, legal code that we live under here in Australia, if there is a law, there's normally a lawmaker, isn't there? Uh, a lawgiver. So it's not unreasonable to believe that if we lived in a world governed by laws, it shouldn't surprise us that there would also be moral laws. Moral laws that are binding on all people in every culture. There is an ultimate standard of right and wrong and good and bad. Laws that claim jurisdiction over our lives and our relationships. Laws that are actually written on your conscience and your heart by your Creator. That's the reason why you have a conscience. Laws God has revealed in His Word. And so, whether we realize it, we are all, as it were, you know, I, I use this word, we are all married to God's law and His world. And we live under its authority and its demands and its consequences. And there are consequences when you break it, which is why when we looked at the book of Romans, uh, here is a bit of uh, 
just to remind you, in the book of Romans, we read previously, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Breaking God's law brings death. Now, here's the problem with us. The problem with us is that uh, we cannot keep God's laws. Uh, we fall short of its perfect demands. Uh, we cannot um, meet its expectations. Uh, the New City Catechism question 7 is there in your outline. says, what does the law of God require? And the answer here, personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. You see that? Can you do that? Personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. We love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, I've used this illustration before. And, and maybe you're not someone who believes in God, or maybe you believe you can keep the law. But, you know, if you think with me for a moment, if there was a good and perfect God, it's fair to assume that his moral standards would actually be perfect. And that's what he would expect. They are perfect laws that govern right and wrong, good and bad. Well, uh, I've used it here at Litkin before and at Burwood. The perfect law of God is like the widest point of the Grand Canyon, which is about 29 kilometers across, right? 95,000 feet. The longest jump ever made by a human being is 30 feet by a professional athlete called Mike Powell. The average long jump is by, you know, by an athlete is about 16 feet. Maybe Will Chen can do that, right? Uh, maybe Leanne can actually do that, okay? Most normal people can only jump seven feet. And so here's the thing, isn't it? Uh, if the, the widest point is 29 kilometers, that's 95,000 feet, whether you're someone who can actually jump 30 feet or, or 16 feet or 7 feet makes no difference, right? The reality is no one's going to actually meet that standard. No one is strong enough, no one is fast enough, and neither is anyone good enough. Everyone falls short. And under the demands and expectations of God's perfect law, Everyone dies because everyone falls short. Everyone dies because everyone falls short. Romans 3 verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And so New City Catechism question 13, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? It's there in your outline. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. You and I, we are consistent lawbreakers in life. In our thoughts, in our minds, in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our words, in our deeds, you fall short. doesn't matter whether you can do the 30-foot jump or the 16-foot jump or the 7-foot jump. You've already fallen short. So under the law, we're all condemned. Death is our judgment. And this is why verse 4 is good news. Okay, Verse 4 is the good news in Romans chapter 7. You died to the law through the body of Jesus, that you might no longer belong to the law, but to another, to him who was raised from death in order that you might bear fruit for God. This is why Jesus died. Okay, Jesus actually died in your place. His death was actually your death. He took on himself your guilt, your failure, your disobedience, your immorality, your condemnation, your judgment. It was your death to the law. He bore its consequences. And so through Jesus, you died to the demands and consequences of the law. He met the perfect demands of the law in his death for you, in his obedience for you. 
He lived a life that you could not live under the law, and he died the death that should have been yours under the law. And because you are what we call united to Jesus, right, joined to Jesus, you share all the benefits of Jesus' life and Jesus' death for you. And that's the reason why you've been freed from the power and the consequences of the law. Now, Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 6. So uh, in your Bibles, you just go back one chapter, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 4 and verse 5. There we read, we were buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You see that? And then he says, we have been united with him in his death like this. If we have been united with Jesus in his death, we'll also be united to him in his resurrection. And so what Paul is saying is that a change has taken place because of Jesus. Previously married to the law, so you live under its authority, its power, its consequences, its demands. Its demands that no one is able to meet. Its consequences, which is death and judgment. But your death with Jesus has terminated that marriage contract. Jesus, in his obedience for you, has met the perfect demands of the law. And so what he does is he clothes you with his beauty, his righteousness, right? His wealth, his morality, his goodness. What's his becomes yours because you are united and joined with him. But then his death for you has actually met the consequences of the law. He was condemned in your place, judged in your place, crushed in your place. What should have been yours became his, right? A great exchange takes place. So it's so important to understand how God saves. I keep saying that because we always get it wrong. We, you know, we, we go back, the default position is always to think we can save ourselves. And this is why Christianity is not the same as religion. Religion is always an attempt to save yourself by keeping the law or a, fulfilling a moral code or keeping the Ten Commandments, being a good person. Even non-religious people are religious. You know that? Because even non-religious people live by the demands of some law in their lives that they're striving to keep and achieve that gives them security and satisfaction uh, and and significance. That's the salvation they're looking for. The law of career success, the law of social standing, the law of fashion and looks, the law of academic achievement, the law of marriage, the law of friendship is exhausting and it's crushing. And so religion says you save yourself through meeting the demands of the law. But Christianity says, Paul says, trust the one who has died for you. You are joined with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. His work, not your work. Jesus has met the perfect demands of the law in his obedience and he's died the death that should have been yours. He clothes you and gives you what is his, his beauty, his goodness, his righteousness, and he took what was yours on himself and paid for it at the cross. And so religion says you save yourself through keeping the law. Christianity says Jesus does everything to save you by meeting the demands of the law for you. Uh, you imagine with me um, Edwina and Joey. Right? Edwina and Joey are normally in the back, but I think uh, their little one is sick today, but they're actually on the live stream. But imagine with me Edwina. Uh, Edwina is super rich, crazy Asian, right? Crazy rich, super Asian. I was going to say crazy Asian, okay? But she, I know. Sorry, Edwina. But, you know, imagine with me she is like crazy rich Asian, okay? And, and Edwina has accomplished all this by her effort, 
uh, her hard work and her intellect. She starts a law firm because she's a lawyer uh, that rises to the top three legal firms globally. Uh, and her hard work means that she has got 70% of the China market. Why? Because Edwina's Mandarin is superb. Uh, she, uh, her legal mind is brilliant. Her cross-cultural skills are amazing. And so she becomes a uh, crazy rich Asian. And all this she's done by her hard work before she got married. Now, Joey, okay, Joey has nothing. In fact, he's flat broke when he married Edwina. Okay, okay so, but when, what happens is when Joey, flat broke, marries Edwina, crazy rich Asian, right? What actually happens? When he marries her, their legal union now means that her riches, her wealth, becomes his riches and his wealth. He did nothing to deserve it. He didn't contribute to it. He did not work for it. He simply married Edwina. He was joined to Edwina, and guess what? He becomes a recipient of all her wealth and all her riches. Do you know that's actually how salvation works in God's economy? That is how salvation works in God's economy. That's how God saves. We have been released from the law, its power, its authority, its demands, its judgment, because of what Jesus has done, and because we have been joined with Jesus, our legal union with him. That's what verse 4 means. You died to the Lord through the body of Jesus to belong to him who was raised from the dead. And so religion says, hey, you work your hardest to, to meet the demands of the Lord to be saved. Christianity says, you know what? Jesus does everything for you by meeting the demands of the law. Everything good of his becomes yours, and everything sinful of yours he bears and dies for at the cross. And so you, that's how you benefit. Now, if that's true, if that's true, it means that you and I no longer need to live under the rule of the law because of Jesus. You pause with me for a second this morning and think with me. Have you realized why your life is so filled with anxiety and exhaustion and stress and guilt and shame? It's probably because you're living under some law in your life right now that is making demands of you that you cannot keep, making demands of you that you keep failing. You know, the law of parenting says, this is what a perfect parent looks like. And it's either exhausting trying to be that perfect parent, or you keep trying and you keep failing. The law of marriage says, this is the perfect husband or wife. And it's either exhausting trying to be the ideal husband or wife, or it's crushing you because you failed as a husband or wife. The law of career actually says, this is where you should be. And, you, and you're so anxious trying to keep up, and you're trying, but you keep failing as everyone else gets ahead. The law of beauty says, this is the standard of beauty. And you're exhausted trying to maintain your image. Or maybe you feel ugly because you just don't meet the standard. Right? We live in a world where people are anxious and exhausted or guilty and ashamed because they're living under the law. Laws they're trying to achieve or laws they're trying to you know, uh, achieve but they keep failing. Laws they're trying to keep or laws that they keep, fa keep failing to keep. Now, here's my question to you this morning to each person in this room. What if there was someone? What if there was someone who could do for you what you could not do under the law? What if there was someone who could do for you what you will never be able to secure under the law? You know, Christianity says there is someone. Uh, the, the religion and the secular say, save yourself through meeting the demands of the law in every sphere of life. Christianity says, Jesus does everything to save you by meeting the demands of the law for you. Every good of his becomes yours. 
the righteousness that you're looking for, the morality that you're striving for, the beauty you've always wanted, the obedience you wish you had, the goodness you're trying to attain, He gives you His, right? And, and everything sinful of yours, He took on Himself. Your failure, your immorality, your disobedience, your ugliness, your wickedness, your poverty, paid for in his death so that you might know forgiveness and acceptance and love forever. That's what Paul means when he says, you have been released from the law. So the most obvious question is now this. Gee, the law sounds bad, right? Because it sounds so oppressive, right? The law sounds bad. Law must be sinful. Well, the law must be a bad thing. And this is what Paul now deals with. Verse 7 to verse 13. So in your Bibles, have a look with me. Because the most obvious question is, the law sounds bad. And so what does Paul say? Verse 7 to verse 13. I'll give it to you up front. Paul says, don't misunderstand me. He says, the law is actually good. Because it shows up our failures and our need for Jesus. Right? So don't misunderstand me. He says, the law is good. Uh, Look at verse 7. See what Paul says? What then shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Absolutely not. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Absolutely not. In fact, to be honest with you, all you've got to do is read verse 7 and verse 13, and you know what the passage is about. Okay? Uh, read the first and second half. Understand what Paul's going to show us. Is the law sinful? Is the law a bad thing? No. Why? Verse 7. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Verse 13. Did the law become death to me? No. Why? In order that sin might be recognized as sin. Right? It used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. This is why the law is good and not bad. It reveals my sin. That's what it does. It shows my failure, my shortcomings. It shows us what good is. And when we see what's good, we see how bad we are. Okay? Paul shares his personal experience. That's verse uh, 7 and verse 8. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment and produced in me every kind of coveting. Like Romans 3 verse 20, right? Paul says, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law is not evil. The law is not bad. It makes us aware of our sin. And so understand is the law is actually God's good gift. It's a guide. It shows us the idea. It, it holds up the good and the right in life. Okay, maybe some of you will understand it better if I said it like this, right? The law is the master. You are the Padawan, the foundling. Uh, the law, this is for Lian, right? The law is the sensei, and you are the jujitsuka or the BJJ trainee, whatever you call them, okay? Don't mess it, Lian. The law is the trainer, and you are the trainee. The law is the coach, and you are the student. The the master, the sensei, the trainer, the coach is there to do what? To guide you. And what do they do? They watch your form, right? And they show you good form, right form, perfect form, which shows up your bad form, your mistakes, your weakness, your failure. Right, And so when Leanne, she goes to BJJ and the coach actually shows her how to do the right move, she doesn't go, lousy, bad. No, she doesn't do that. She recognizes that's what she should be doing. And then she recognizes she fails and she falls short. And 
under that law, she tries harder, which is a problem because that's not a model of the Christian life. Now, I have to say that people do not like the idea that God has commands or laws that he demands of us because it makes God sound harsh and demanding. But I don't know if you realize this. In all of life, we, we live under laws that are demanded of us that are actually good things. Professional standards that tell us right and wrong in our fields of work. Ethical codes in business that tells us what is acceptable and not acceptable. Codes of practices that tell us what we can't and can't do in our roles. Health and cleanliness standards in our hospitals. Uh, what's good and bad in our hospitals. There is best practice, notice, in every industry that tells us what excellence looks like. And why are they there? They're there so we flourish. right? They're there so that others around us flourish. And so if you're a doctor, you're bound by a code of practices, practice that says this is how you are to treat patients. Okay? Well, this is, this is what it means to treat them well so that they are safe. This is what best practice looks like. If you're a teacher in every sphere of life, there are laws that are laid down, and they're there not to crush us but to help us thrive. Okay? But they don't just show us what is excellent, do they? They don't just show us what is good. They also show up our failings, where we have failed, where we fall short, where we need to improve. Uh, no one goes, you know, the code of conduct in my workplace, you know, is, is lousy, it's evil, it's wicked, because it makes me look bad, causes me to sin. No, we don't. The code of conduct, the standards of professionalism, health and cleanliness, best practice shows up my failure. So to the law. God's law is not the problem. It shows up my sin. It shows me up because... I am the problem. But there's a second thing. Notice, the law activates my sinful heart. It provokes me to sin. Look at verse 8 to verse 10. Paul says, Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the law, producing me every kind of coveting, because when I heard the law, sin came alive in me. It sprang to life. Every commandment that was supposed to bring life brought death, because it made me want to sin even more, to break the law even more. Paul says a very similar thing, you know, verse 5. Go back to verse 5. It says, our sinful passions are aroused by the law so that we produce fruit for death. And so the law reveals how sinful we are because what happens is we respond to the law by using it as an opportunity to sin even more. Okay? The word opportunity is a military word. In other words, in the face of God's law, right, we, we use the opportunity to set up a base of operation, to fight the law, to defy the law, to skirt the law, to do what the law says we should not do. And sin, as it were, in us actually sets up a base of operation to actually do that. It becomes a springboard to break the law. Now, this strange phenomenon okay, is something we see in both children and adults. Psychologists actually call it contra-suggestibility. Okay? So it's a real thing. Contra-suggestibility. Uh, you can actually look it up. Uh, it is the propensity to act or to speak contrary to what has been commanded to you or asked of you or demanded of you. Right? It's the propensity to react negatively to any directive. To say no when you hear yes. To say yes when you hear no. Paul says when it comes to God and his word, God and his law, God and his demands, his commands, his laws, we are all subject to contra-suggestibility when it comes to God's law. And so here's the thing, right? You see a traffic sign that says, reduce speed now, bend ahead, right? Bend ahead, um, drive at 70 to, to actually go through the bend. 
Uh, what do we do? We speed up. We attempt to do it at 90. Okay, some of you here I know will do that, not all of you. Uh, we see a safety barrier, and we feel the urge to cross it. A couple of years back, uh, I took a bunch of leaders at Grace Point. Uh, we did a leaders retreat, and we uh, took a hike up the cliff. Uh, and at the end of the cliff, uh, through this bush track, there was a sign on a barrier on the edge of the cliff that says, Danger, do not cross. It was white sign in red. And, and what did the leaders do? They all got together. They all put their foot over the barrier, and they all stood next to the sign, and they took a photo of themselves doing that. Okay? That's contra-suggestibility. We're told not to steal office stationery, and we steal. We're told to tell the truth on our tax return, and we lie. Paul says, you know, the law activates our sinful hearts. That's what it does. Okay? Uh, Augustine, uh, this is for Elliot, who's not here. Augustine, uh, in his confession, writes of his experience like Paul, and he says, There was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, we set out to rob it, my friends and I, and carry our spoils away. Uh, we took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon it ourselves, but to actually throw them and feed them to the pigs. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted. I had plenty better at home. And Augustine, in his confessions, he writes that I wasn't hungry because I fed the pears to the pigs. And he says, I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and doing what was wrong. The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of not stealing. We see a sign that says, do not cross. And we feel the urge to cross because we're sinful. We're all like that. And so, you know, I, I thought about it, you know, uh, a couple of days ago. And I thought, imagine with me what would happen if we put up a sign in the corner of our church. You know, when you drive to church, there are those big signs over there. If we put a sign in front of our church in the corner that said something like, dumping rubbish here, absolutely forbidden. I reckon within a week, you're going to find rubbish dumped all over the front of our church. That's what will happen, Right? Because the human heart, right, is like that. And, and human laws, human laws, just as something like that, human laws are to us like shaking is to a can of Coke. It provokes our hearts to rebel. And so it's no surprise, look at verse 11 of me, the law kills, it brings death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the law put me to death. It produces death. It condemns me. That's why Paul says, verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment holy, righteous, and good. Leviticus 18.5 says, keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. But the problem is we don't obey. And so the problem is never God's law, God's demands. It's us, our sinful hearts. The law shows us up. It shows us our failure. It provokes us to sin. And when we sin, it brings death. It brings judgment. Many, many years ago at uh, our PM church, I remember speaking to a young man uh, who said to me, I resent the Christian life. I resent the Christian life because of the demands placed on me. God's expectations are too high. His demands impossible. His standards crushing. And I'm really, really resentful having to live the Christian life. And I want to say to you, if you feel like that, that's not an indicator that God's commands or God's laws are bad. 
It's not an indicator that God's demands of you in life are oppressive. It's not an indicator that God's laws are harsh. It's actually an indicator of how bad your heart is. You don't like God's commands. You don't like his decrees. You don't like his way for your life. It's showing up how sinful you really are. That's what it's doing. You know, the law doesn't cause you to sin. It's, it exposes what's already there and brings it to light, and then it condemns it in our lives. The law doesn't cause death, sin does. Think of someone who commits a crime and is caught red-handed breaking the law. He's arrested, he's brought to trial, he's sentenced. He can't blame the law for his imprisonment. Yeah, true, under the law he's convicted, but no one can actually blame the law They can only blame themselves. And so in the same way, Paul says, it's not the law that's criminal. The villain is sin in us. And that's the reason why the law is good. Because the law says, you know, when you realize that, you realize you need a savior, you need saving. The law is good because it shows up your failings, your sinful heart, your rebel nature, and your need for a savior, your need for Jesus. And so you notice in our passage today, Paul actually does two things, doesn't he? He affirms that the law is good and it shows up our sin. It shows us that we have rebel hearts. Uh, It shows us that living under the law brings death. But notice Paul has also shown us, hasn't he, that because we have died with Jesus, we have been what? Released from the law. Its demands and its consequences. And so like I said at the start, the great myth is that Christianity is about keeping the law to be saved. It's not. It's all about what Jesus has done and how, because we are joined with him in his death, we actually benefit. I want to draw a few points of reflection uh, and application this morning. So in your outlines, I'm going to draw three short ones that hopefully will be helpful for you. Number one, if the law is good, embrace it and let it drive you to Jesus, right? If the law is good, then recognize it's there to show up your failure so that you are driven more and more to the Lord Jesus. Um, A deeper appreciation of God's grace, a greater desire for Jesus, a greater love for your Savior and what He's done for you, only takes place as you become more and more aware of your sin, your shortcomings and your failures in life. And we come to recognize our sinfulness, our failure, our depravity, our disobedience when we come under the law. Because the law shows us what God requires of us and our failure. Until you come to know the law, the commandments, God's moral will, the righteous decrees of God, God's standards, you'll be blind to your sin. And that's the reason why, for the vast majority of people in our church, daily repentance and and faith is not their practice. Uh, I say this at Burwood uh, all the time. If you have nothing to repent of, it's a problem. Because the rhythm of the Christian life, the rhythm of worship, which is why we do it here every Sunday, is repentance and faith. It's a reminder to me each day that I will always need the gospel because I will always need saving from my sin. In fact, sanctification, growth in the Christian life comes as you become more and more aware of your sin in life as you open up to be confronted by God's law and His word. The law sheds light on my sin and it drives me to repentance and faith. And that's why, you know, uh, the catechism question 15 is there in your outlines. Since no one can keep God's law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature and will of God, the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need for a Savior. Okay? 
And so let me encourage you, you know, when you read the Bible, read it as God's law, God's commands, God's best practice for your life. Let it shine light onto the darkness of your life. Let it scrutinize your heart, your behavior, your thoughts, your actions. And when you see your bad form, your failure, your disobedience, let it drive you to Jesus in repentance and faith. And so, you know, this is a great exercise this week. You might want to do it this week in your personal Bible reading. Ask yourself, is there a command of God here that I am failing or I have failed? Is there an instruction God is giving me that I am neglecting or have neglected? Is there a directive God has made here that I am disobeying or have disobeyed? And if you are like me, I can guarantee that you will not go very far without recognizing your need to repent. To run to Jesus to find forgiveness and a fresh start. The law is good. Embrace it and let it drive you to Jesus. There's a second thing. If Jesus has released you from the law, don't try to live under the law. If, you, if Jesus has come and releases from the law, don't try to live under the law. You know, there are actually two ways. There's only two ways to live in the world. Like only two ways to live in God's economy, according to this passage. You can choose to live under the law, trying to save yourself by keeping the law, trying to keep God's commands. But Paul says living under the law brings death because of your sin. If you attempt to jump the grand canyon of God's demands and God's perfect laws and commands, you will die. No one is able to keep the law. In fact, under the law, everyone is deserving of condemnation and death. And so if you are here today and you are trying to save yourself by being a more moral person and a good person, if you're here today and you think you can secure God's acceptance by your law keeping, can I say to you that you have already failed and you are already condemned? Jesus came to release you from the pound, the authority, and the consequences of the law. The demands and consequences of the law, they were all placed on him so that you might know freedom from the law. And so to you, I want to say, stop trying to save yourself and trust Jesus' work for you. His obedience to the law for you and his death because of the law for you. You can try to save yourself by keeping the law or you can trust Jesus to release you from the law. Now, maybe this morning you heard me speak and you've realized, yeah, I've spent my whole life trying to live under the law. Uh, maybe you've realized it's killing you and it's crushing you. I'll never be able to meet the absolute demands of the law. And maybe you realize for the first time that Jesus is good news because he's able to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He's able to give you what you can't secure. Everything good of his becomes yours and everything sinful and failed in you and broken in you, actually he has taken on himself at the cross. And so maybe today you entrust your life to him. Wouldn't that be wonderful if you did that today? Here's the third thing. If Jesus has released you from the law, don't let the law condemn you. Some of you today, I suspect, some of you today, you are living under the constant cycle of guilt and shame. And your life actually feels like a roller coaster. As hard as you try to keep doing what is good and right, you keep falling to sin. Or maybe the memories of past sin and shame and guilt just keep coming back. And so your life is a roller coaster. I don't need to tell you God's law. You know God's law and you know how far, for, how far you've fallen short. 
You know it. I don't have to tell you that. And maybe your Christian life is like that, a roller coaster of success and failure, memories of past shame. And most of the time, failure, you feel one step forward, three steps back. It's exhausting. It's crushing. It's despairing. And, and if you're crushed, maybe your heart is saying, man, the law is crushing. It stresses me out because I know I keep failing. Uh, we hate the standards and rules and commandments because every time we hear it, we feel crushed. Memories of the past leave us uh, every so often uh, filled with guilt and remorse and shame. It fills us with despair and hopelessness. Maybe that's you. Can I say to you, every failure can be redeemed. Listen very carefully. Did you hear that? Every failure can be redeemed. Remember the song we sing? Our sins, they are many. You know the words. But His mercy is more. Good news, right? Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Do you believe that? The grace of the gospel can redeem every fail in your life. Every guilt. Every past. There is no shame. Jesus did not take on himself at the cross. There is no ugliness in us. He did not take on himself at the cross. There is no sin. Jesus did not pay for at the cross. You see, the law will always condemn you. Why? Because you will fail. But the Savior will always accept you because he has taken your place at the cross. You died with him to the law. Did you get that? You died with him to the law. Every good of his becomes yours, and everything sinful of yours he took on himself. Our sins are there many, but his mercy is more. The remedy to guilt and shame and failure is not to hide. Not to actually try to earn your way or to pay it back. The remedy is to rest in his grace. To simply say, I failed. I need your mercy. I need your righteousness when I'm feeling full of shame. I need your obedience when I failed. I need your beauty when I'm feeling so, so ugly. I need you to deal with my sin. I need your forgiveness. And when you do that, something wonderful happens. You are released from the condemnation of the law because of Jesus. And everything good of His becomes yours. And everything sinful of yours was laid on Him at the cross. Is that good news? I think it's the best news ever. Amen.